0: I I should have made a caveat of that. uh, Now, um, we were in 2 Samuel 7 last week, and we began to talk about God's promise to David to build him a house. Remember, David wanted to build God a house, and God said, no, I don't don't need a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he was talking about a dynasty that would last forever. Well, we're going to continue on that line, looking at passages from the Old Testament that that come true in the New. Uh, Let me give you kind of a, uh, for those of you who kind of like to read ahead, next week we're going to be in Psalm 110, Mark 12, and Acts 2. Psalm 110, Mark 12, Acts 2. We're going to look at another aspect of this thing. But today, we're going to look a little more at at, um, this issue of, of, of... the eternal kingdom. Now, I, I find it intriguing. As I was doing some reading again this week, I find it intriguing. You know, during the high days of Jesus, Hisra- uh, of Israel's history, like uh, during the time of David, it was kind of probably easy for uh, the nation, for the people of Israel, to kind of connect the dots with God is with us because he was making them prosperous. That It was kind of a time of peace. Uh, most of their enemies, David, uh, had vanquished, and so it was a time of peace, it was a time of, of uh, economic strength, it was a time, um, um, you know, kind of the chicken in every pot kind of idea, you know, uh, and um, and they loved King David, even though he made some mistakes, they loved him, and but that just didn't last very long, you know, his son Solomon um, kind of made some unhealthy alliances, and by the time it got to his son, Rehoboam, the kingdom was split in two. Well, for the rest of the Old Testament period that you read about, you recognize that even though they have this promise of an eternal kingdom, things aren't going very well. Um, I, I get to thinking about the Bible being the story of God with his people in really hard times. They endured throughout centuries. They endured disappointment and suffering and even death. Outcomes that might have appeared to be no better, if not far worse, than those experienced by their pagan neighbors who worshipped gods that were not, instead of the God who is. Now, sometimes we have a parallel experience, don't we? Well, when his people had been defeated, he promised victory. Where they'd been wronged, He promised to make things right. When they suffered, he promised to bring them comfort. But he may not do it in their time. Um, And so you and I are living in this day when um, God has fulfilled his promise. Now, God has promised to send a great descendant of David whose kingdom God would establish forever to build the true temple of God as generation gave way to generation and king succeeded king. The faithful reminded themselves of that promise even though they couldn't see it sometimes. Uh, They may have seen a few signs that indicated that God was still in control but sometimes it probably appeared that God had abandoned his people uh, to whatever came their way. But no matter what was happening, God's promise was sure. And he often restated the promise of this great king to come. Now, let's look at a couple of those. We're going to be in, in Isaiah and Psalms, and then we're going to go over to the New Testament to, to the little gospel of Matthew. So, um, Bob, do you mind to go to Psalm 89? Okay. Now, let me, I'm, going to, I'm going to put us in a historical perspective here for just a second. Um, uh, I'll, I'll try to with each of these. Here's a statement now of God's faithfulness. Um, it has been talking about fighting their battles for him in the first several verses. Bob's going to read for us verse 35, 36, and 37. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. This is lying, and it will continue forever. It is thrown into before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, making witness in the sky. Uh, um, interesting here God is making this he's stating this promise again and the promise is based on what fact about God faithfulness um, now what else does he say here besides that he's faithful okay he said I, I, my holiness I don't lie now we've got to think about that for a minute okay um, somebody mind to make their way over to a Numbers 23, 19? God is going to say, Estelle, uh, would you get that one? Uh, God is going to say, now when you're worried about the outcome of all this, remember I promised it. I promised it in my holiness, which means what, by the way? You know, you could say goodness, righteousness. You could also say unique. All right? I've promised this in my holiness. I don't lie, he says. So the promises of God are based upon his character. Okay? Now, let's think about it. Maybe you, had, um, maybe you had people in your life that would promise and never deliver. And so after a while of that, you kind of figured that out, and they'd promise you something, you'd figure, well, whatever. But maybe there was somebody in your life, who promised, and their character was consistent with the promise, and so you knew whatever they promised, they could deliver. Okay? My dad used to say to me, if I tell you a hen-dip snuff, just look under his wing for the box. (laughs) Uh, If I tell you a hen-dip snuff, just look under her wing for a box. The sun, the moon, and the stars may vary, but but not what I'm telling you, pal, okay? And you know what? My dad had a consistent character with the things that he promised me and the things that he told me, okay? Uh, All right, so God's promises are conditional upon his character, and his character is unimpeachable. Now, uh, Estella, read from Numbers 23. Those are great rhetorical questions and the answer implies never he's not a man he doesn't lie he comes through what God promised to David would God promise something to David and, and lie about it no now we got to realize there were lots of dark years centuries where they wondered wait a minute maybe we just kind of missed it. maybe they didn't really get it right uh, Le our conversation for class. Maybe this was just a fable, okay? And it's not. It's history. God promised it. Is it going to happen? Well, it didn't happen in many of their lifetimes, and that's really, really hard to come to terms with. All right. Now, uh, look at look at verse thirty-six. The promise of God. Now and I reference Second Samuel seven because that was where we were last week. The promise to David was for two things: a line. Okay, so put that in your first blank. A line. All right, there will be a king come from your line. Um, now the word "line" here literally means seed. Okay, so it's it's uh, we're talking about descendants here. Uh, he had the promise of him a line. That this would come that this promise would come through David's line that's going to be important for what we're talking about today and his throne there would be a throne now a throne here implies uh, kind of a throne is a symbol of a king's rule okay um, it's, now his throne here okay I've got to think about um, uh, it's interesting in our day, we, it's hard for us to kind of come to terms with the idea of a, of a kingly throne because we don't have many kings or, or queens that are actually reigning in the sense of this uh, as, as in the Old Testament. But, but if you talk about the thro- um, he inherited the throne of Henry VIII, then you're, you're talking about uh, a king's uh, power, dynasty, even wealth. Now, this is a similar idea. It's a, there's a line, there are descendants coming, and they will, have this, they will sit on this same throne. And to kind of tie it all together in the book of Psalms, there's a lot of, a, a lot of uh, symbolic messages here, but to kind of tie it all together, uh, they use uh, the idea of something that's permanent to tie it to. And here, he's going to use the idea of the moon. There's nothing more permanent than the moon. The sun and the moon are more permanent than anything in their daily experience and really in ours, okay? What do we say today when we want to say something about permanence? Do what? Lasting. Lasting. Okay, we'll say, uh, you know, nothing's, nothing's really sure except death and taxes, right? Okay. But the truth is, there not, hasn't always been taxes, and praise the Lord, one day there won't be, Okay. All right, But there has always been a moon. In our experience, in our lifetime, right? There's always been a moon. And and the idea of permanence is tied to kind of that idea. Now, will there always be a moon? That's another another story, isn't it? According to the New Testament, one of these days, all this is going to be burned up with a fervent heat. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, we've got to kind of come to terms with that at some point, but that's for another day. But so... He, he tries to tie this promise to something that they've seen every day of their lives. Um, the moon. You've seen it? You've seen it? It changes here for 30 days? You know, all that stuff just got to be, it's been natural. It's been part of your lives and your experience. When you see that, remember. Maybe, maybe you and I ought to tie the promises of God to something that we see on a daily basis. You ever thought about doing that? Is there something in your world that's just always there? And you may ignore it because it's always there. David will say in one of his psalms, when I gaze into the night sky and see the heavens and the works of your your hands, what am I that you're mindful of me? He's using something that he sees to remind him of the faithfulness of God and his position in the universe. Maybe you and I ought to do that same kind of thing too. Now, I want us to jump over, turn right a little ways, not too far. To Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, all right, um, th- 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 chapter 7 through 12 of the book of Isaiah, we're going to go to Isaiah 9, but the chapters 7 through 12 are sometimes called the book of Emmanuel because they're focused on the promised king and his appearance that would signify God with us. Remember, we, we talked about God being with us in our prayer time today. That name, Emmanuel, that comes in 714. Now, we're going to jump over to chapter 9, and in chapter 9, a cri- the great crisis of the 8th century B.C., so think about 700 B.C. when you think of Isaiah. The great crisis of, of the 8th century is that Syria, north of them, has aligned themselves, or we could argue that they're brothers in the northern kingdoms of Israel, you know, that divided part of the kingdom, okay? You've got in the south, there's Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah, in the north, there's all the other ten tribes besides besides Judah and Benjamin that have aligned together with Syria, and Judah is shaken in their boots, especially the wicked king Ahaz who reigns in Jerusalem. Okay? He's scared to death, and he's, he's pretty much pagan. Okay? Not faithful. So the nation is worried about this. Is God going to deliver us? And so when I read... Isaiah 7, there is kind of an immediate thing that it's dealing with and a longer term thing. Let's go now to Isaiah 9. You'll recognize verse 6 and 7. Somebody read them. There's that beautiful line from uh, one of the choruses in in Handel's Messiah, and uh, comes right from Isaiah nine six. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Okay, beautiful. It's one of my favorite passages to read at Christmas time because we believe it's talking about the King. Now, now what you've got to realize is that to its original hearers in Isaiah's day, seven hundred B.C., they've got. Uh, the Arameans or the Syrians on the north uh, linking up with with Judah's, even, uh, with Israel's even more wicked king, and uh, they're thinking, you know, we're going to be no more. They thought that a soon-to-be king was going to be born, and they're looking for that. Another David. That's what they're looking for. Throughout all this period of, of Israelite history, they're looking for a David. Because they were... Fat and sassy in David's day, you know? And things are pretty lean today. What you and I have got to recognize, with with the benefit of 2,000 years of history, actually 2,700 years or so of history, is that what Isaiah is talking about here is not just an end to a short-term political crisis. Now, what I'm going to ask here is what part of this description of the coming king is most meaningful to you. Let, let's talk about uh, what, what I believe there are about four descriptions of the coming king. This son, number one, is clearly marked for rule. Well, th- this is kind of generalized, but when t- he's marked for rule. He will sit on a throne. Uh, there will be a government which figuratively rests on his shoulders. What does it mean that that whatever government there is will rest on his shoulders? What does that mean? He's got authority. He's going to take responsibility. Okay. Now, let's go into these four descriptions then of what kind of a ruler or leader this would be. First of all, he's called a wonderful counselor. Isn't it beautiful? Um, the word wonderful suggests that the child will possess power that belongs to God alone. He will be a wonder. Does anybody like a description of it you know? Okay, here we go. Um, counselor indicates that he's going to be wise. He'll be a source of wisdom. Alright? Wouldn't it be nice when you and I need to sort something out, to have a wonderful counselor in our presence? Can I tell you, you do. God's Holy Spirit is available to you all the time since Acts 2. Alright, so he's he's called a wonderful counselor. Second, he's called mighty God. It depicts the Lord as a great warrior. Uh, In Somebody go to Exodus 15, 3. It's going to describe God that way. Yep. Cindy, would you read that, Exodus 15, 3? The Lord is a warrior. So here's the idea that that this one... Now, you and I got to start thinking about this. Wait a minute. Wonderful. He's wonderful. He's a warrior. Now, they call God a warrior. A mighty God. He's going to be the mighty God. Now, wait a minute. That's not David. David was... Good. Sometimes. He was godly. Sometimes. But was he, the, could we call him the mighty God? Wait a minute, i got to kind of tie this together. Okay, the third description then is everlasting father. That indicates one, the word father here is a word, it's kind of a kind word that indicates one who cares for his family or for his people. Protecting and providing, but here it's going to be protecting and providing without end, everlasting. All right? Now, remember, in their culture, as in ours, the presence of a father in the home was a big deal. And those who didn't have one didn't do very well. It's kind of true of us today, right? So he's promising them uh, this leader who will be kind of like an everlasting father, one that won't go away to them. All right, And the fourth description is, uh, boy, one of our favorites, right? The Prince of Peace. Now, that description of this peace is not just describing what they're looking for, which is an end to war. But the idea of positive harmony, goodwill, the kind of peace that Israel's never known to this point in history. The Prince of Peace, okay? Let's rehearse these names again. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, maybe occasionally you and I ought to meditate on those names and think, which one of those do I most resonate with at this season in my life? And it may change uh, through the seasons of our lives. I think it's pretty clear here, though, that what we're talking about was not just an end to some kind of a short term issue or crisis. Now, in verse 7, the rest of this kind of ensues. Uh, this idea of the king that's coming. And um, um, somebody read verse 7 to us again. Gonna have to track with me for a couple of minutes to catch my reasoning here. I put some references in there. We won't go over there, but Samuel, when Israel first asked for a king, what do they get? By the way, they get Saul. Okay, which Samuel anointed, and you know, you could say, okay, Samuel, you, you're complicit in this too. But Saul was, you know, it's like, uh, you know, um, you're, ladies, you're, you're getting ready to get engaged to your guy, and he gives you a ring out of a Cracker Jack box. I mean, you know, he, he just wasn't what they needed, even though he looked like he was going to be. All right? Samuel warns him. He says, you know, you've asked for a king. Let me tell you what you're going to get. And you're not going to like it all that well. He's going to impose your young men into service. He's going to tax you like crazy. Okay, so those passages that I've recorded there from 1 Samuel 8 and 1 Samuel 10... Um, or, or kind of where Samuel's kind of reading them the right act about that. Samuel warned them about kings. But here, this king is described in what way? Two things that I think about. He's going to rule with judgment and justice. Don't you wish every ruler ruled with judge, judgment and justice? Wisdom and justice. Fairness. And the other description of him is that his kingdom will have no end. Now, that's really Interesting. Could it be? Could it be? And it makes you wonder. I I, I think Isaiah got it. But I wonder if many of his contemporaries got it. By the way, just a few chapters before, Isaiah has dealt with the loss of a great king that he loved, Uzziah. And he's grieving over that. They were friends. They were contemporaries. And he loved it. And so in chapter 6, he's grieving the loss of that. Could it be that Isaiah got this, but not many of his contemporaries got it. Could it be that the Emmanuel king that's described in 714, the one that's with us, could it be that God himself will be the one who fulfills 714? I began to think about, as they thought ahead of it, and even Isaiah himself might have said, you know, it'll be, if he's thinking of a human, could it be that they're saying, well, when this king comes, he'll be the son of David, and it'll be like God himself is with us. What I want to say is, that's way short. It will be God himself with us, not like God Himself with us. Are you catching the, the interesting distinction there? When this King comes, when the Emmanuel King comes, it won't be that it it's just like God Himself is with us. Now by the way, I've never known a leader that quite fit that description of you, a human leader. Okay, there's some that are get kind of close, right? But I'm not really sure you would, anyone would quite live up to that. But they're thinking, when, he, when this king comes, it'll be like God himself is with us. Do you understand how far short they're selling what God is getting ready to do? Because when God, when the Emmanuel king comes, it will be God himself with us. Oh, that one word is, a, is an amazing distinction Not like God himself, but God himself. Okay, now, let's go on to another passage, all right? By the way, when he comes, he's going to bring that judgment and justice that they need. Let's go now over to Matthew. Matthew is more interested, it seems to me, than any of the other gospel writers, any of the other three, at connecting the dots between what was predicted in the Old Testament and comes true in the New. So we're going to go to chapter 1. Would somebody read the very first verse of chapter 1 before we get down to our text. Matthew one one. This is kind of, you could argue, this is the beginning of the New Testament. Okay. Jesus Christ. What's that next title? Son of David. Son of Abraham. But you and I are talking about This one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7, the son of who? David. Okay? Matthew kind of helps us connect those dots. Now, somebody go down to verse 18 and read through 23. Matthew connects the dots, doesn't he? Now, what we've got to do is fast forward 700 years from Isaiah 9. Okay, Now, here's the problem. 700 years fast forward, there's a king sitting on the throne of Israel. What's his name? Herod. And he's despotic. He is paranoid. Um, uh, historians would say the only thing worse than being Herod's dog would be his son, because he had a bunch of them killed because he was afraid they would steal his throne out from under him, okay? He's not a son of David. He's actually a son of Esau. He comes from Esau's line. So where's the connection here? Well, we're going to try to find out. Where is the Emmanuel king? The story of the Emmanuel king believes in, begins in verse 18, when this angel visits this young maiden named Mary. Her times are hard, and her life is about to get harder because she's going to go through the, the, um, the difficulty of not just, ladies, those of you who've had children, not just the difficulty of pregnancy, but add to that the difficulty of scandal. Okay? Uh, a stigmatized pregnancy. So the angel visits her, and then in verse 19, Joseph, her betrothed, has decided that he's going to act. He, he finds out that she's pregnant. Uh, this is, the, the chronology of this is interesting. The, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, how it kind of plays out is very, very interesting. Um, the, the sequence of events. Joseph has decided, he finds out she's pregnant, and he's going to do the merciful thing. So the word you, goes in your blank, is he's going to act with mercy. Have you heard Toby Keith's old song, I Want to Talk About Me? Lyrics tell about a man who listens patiently to his girlfriend's incessant chatter about all the minutiae of her life. He does so without complaint, but occasionally he's had enough, and he responds by saying, in effect, every now and then, I'd like a verse to talk about me, things I'm interested in. Aren't you glad Joseph wasn't Toby Keith? Because he's interested in her. He can't go through with the marriage He could have her put to death, but instead he acts mercifully in her behalf. Now, what I want you to catch is, guys, this happens before the angel visits him. Isn't it interesting how God keeps him kind of in a quandary here? God allows him to go through this mental, emotional anguish of knowing about the pregnancy. And after that, if you read verse 20 and 21... Um, the angel comes and gives him assurance and says, This is part of God's plan. She is still a virgin maiden, but this is part of God's plan. You're going to raise God's son. Now, isn't it interesting how God greets him in verse 20? Joseph, son of what? Ha. <laughs> interesting. The dots are being connected, right? And he's, he even gives him the name that Jesus is going to be named. Um, I I did a little research this week. Um, Notice here that um, that the name is according to divine instruction, not human creativity. Okay, Um, you know you know who Bruce Willis is. Let me list for you a list of um, his children's names. You ready? Rumor, Scout, Tallulah Bell. Okay, I think there's another one, but I'm, I'm missing that one. Rumor. Name a kid, Rumor. Okay, I'll go one worse than that. Remember Frank Zappa? Here's a list of his children's names. You ready? He wanted to name one motorhead. She vetoed, his, his wife vetoed that. Uh, the eccentric Renaissance man and his wife, Gail, fell in love at, after meeting in 1966 when she was working at a Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles They later became parents to two daughters Moon Unit and Diva Muffin, sons Dweezel and Ahmet Amuka Rodan. Uh, they're going to say that the bizarre names all have a special meaning within the family. Dweezel was a pet name. Ahmet was the title of an imaginary butler. Diva was given for her moniker because she was a noisy baby. Uh, you know what? I am so glad that the name of The Emmanuel king wasn't left to some mom or dad's creativity. In fact, he wasn't even given a unique name in some ways. He was named Joshua, Yeshua, the same name as the Old Testament, the great Old Testament leader. But the name of the child matters because the angel is going to say, This Joshua will save his people from their sin. Here's the deliverer that's coming, here's the conqueror it's coming. And it goes on in verse 22, as Steve read for us, to remind us that this place, there's Matthew's, this is kind of Matthew's um, uh, commentary. All of this is to fulfill what the prophet said. These events are no accident. Matthew connects the dots. And so Matthew connects in verse 23, Isaiah's day to his own, and says... This is the Emmanuel king. And he connects Isaiah's day not only to his own, but I'm going to say he connects it to ours. Now, here's the question. Whatever you're going through, where is God in all this? Put yourself in the first century B.C., first century um, A.D., and recognize that they were still looking for the Emmanuel king and wondering, God, where are you? Herod's a despot. The Romans were under their boot and uh, were having to pay taxes and things aren't going all that well. God, where are you? And they would go back and read Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and realize there is an Emmanuel king coming and it will be like God is with us. And what I want to say is, whatever there is going on in your life, one of the things you, guys and, I, you and I have to recognize is that because of the Emmanuel king and because Matthew connects the dots and says, this one who the blind man called the son of David was the Emmanuel king. And I'm going to say to you, he is the Emmanuel king, and he is now with us. Now, I, got, I want to ask our two questions again, and I'm going to ask them each week as we're together. Joe asked me a little bit ago, when is Easter? It's like the 23rd of April. It's really late, you know. 20, is it 20th? I was looking it up and, uh, sometime way back, back down. Is that your birthday? We'll, uh, we'll sing up in the grave heroes or something on your birthday. Um, Over these weeks, I want us to ask ourselves almost daily, if you can remember it, write it in your notes, maybe put it in a card, a prayer card, something put in your Bible. Do you know, are you ready? Do you know this Jesus? The one that the prophet called, the Emmanuel King. Do you know this Jesus? The one that the prophets predicted, the one who lives forever. The one who went to the cross for you and came out of the empty tomb for you and me. Do you know this Jesus? Second question is more of a volitional question. Do you want him? Do you want him to be a part of your life? He won't cohabitate in your heart. Can I tell you that? With you, or another person, or a plan, or a future, or anything else? Do you want him? You see, my contention is, if you come to know the one who really is, I can't imagine not wanting him. A friend of mine from Alabama now lives in Mississippi. He actually migrated a long ways from, we've been all over the world since then, but he's now in Mississippi. Artie will say to me, I've heard Artie preach this many times, he would say, if I could take what's in my heart, if I could take what's in my heart, and give it to you, you would never want to give it back. Do you want him? Do you want him? This Jesus, our God with us, Emmanuel King, It's not like God is with us. i got to tell you, folks, he is with us in all of my trials and all of my struggles. Do you know him? Do you want him? I'm going to ask you those two questions every week. Bless you. I'll see you next week, okay?